Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We talk about state visits. Is there any point to them? Helen speaks to Ben Power about the Lehman Trilogy. And what is the future of CUK RIP? Do you have a favourite picture from the Trump state visit, Stephen? So actually I have very few pictures from it in my mind because, one, because as we speak I've just, you know, left my column cocoon. So I'm only distantly aware of what the images of it looked like. That's I, very funny. You'll do things the other way around to me, which is that the more I'm writing a piece, the more my desire, my, my browsing finger strays towards Mail Online, thinking they'll have loads and loads of pictures of all the frocks. I can tell you that Kate Middleton, as was, wore a delightful white Alexander McQueen gown. Ivanka Trump wore a Caroline Herrera gown that was a shirt dress with a big full skirt that made her, unfortunately, look like wallpaper. Tiffany Trump, my favourite Trump, was wearing a dress that I'm pretty sure I wore as my sister's bridesmaid in 1999. I thought Tiffany was like the black sheep or... She's the slightly less done one, if you see what I mean, which is Mm. why I feel a certain kind of kinship with her, that she looks around all of these women with identical teeth and hair and kind of thinks... But is there right. not is there not an estranged Trump daughter? I don't know. Am I, think, I making this I think up? She, I thought I... she was the one. Okay, that was, right, but yeah. she's definitely she's here. As are the two sons, particularly the one who looks like the vampire, and the wife Lara of one of the sons who is pregnant, who was nonetheless wearing a very lovely gown that really accentuated her baby bump, as I believe Mail Online calls it. Anyway, the Queen looking miserable as sin in the way that the Queen really can at the age of ninety, whatever, was there. Trump was wearing a terribly tailored tuxedo. And uh, the current Mrs. Trump, whose name... Melania, there we go, was also wearing... I don't know whether it might be something about wearing white at state banquets, but she was wearing a very tight white... Again, I think another Alexander McQueen does with illusion netting. You know the thing that like professional ice skaters wear. I don't understand why you thought that like professional ice skaters were going to help me here. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, maybe you don't know much about haute couture, but if there's one thing you know, Stephen, it's ice dance. Yeah, professional ice skaters. Okay, well, yeah, I, I think I know what an imitation veil thing is. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's your important update on the, the state banquet, but. We were talking before about whether or not there was a point to having the state visit at all from the political side, right? So obviously, from, from my desire to consume pictures of quite thin women in quite nice frocks, strong. But from every other perspective, I do not see the point of a state visit, given that 
Trump seems to have spent the time. He's he spent the time with Theresa May saying nice but wildly absurd things like she should be involved in the trade deal even after she's gone. I imagine Theresa May's post-premiership to-do list has quite a lot of cook nice Ottolenghi stuff and not very much talk ever again to Donald Trump on it. So the the broad theory of state visits, right, is essentially you put on a nice party with some decent food for someone and they are more inclined to like you afterwards, which I am personally semi-dubious about as an idea, right? It, it feels to me like it's essentially the kind of, like, it's the, like, theory of let's invite a bunch of journalists to, like, some nice, like, you know, hipstery beers at the launch of our startup in the hope that, like, They're right people nice things write nice it. things about us. I mean, you know, not to, to look forward too much in this section but like you know like change uk invited a bunch of people to a quite nice launch event in you know in a swanky central london location and you drank their ipa and then you still said mean things about them yeah i mean they didn't put any ipa on but even if they had right (laughs) i mean i think the thing is that ultimately actually the lib dems are the other example right the lib dems like the cosmic mystery of british politics is why like britain's least cool political party the only party where you could start a fight by yelling like Catan is better than ticket for ride punching someone and then ducking and running out right is somehow also the party which always has by far the hippest venues possible i think maybe because the type of person who makes a lot of money running and setting up a hip venue is the type of person who gives money and a free venue to the liberal democrats but ultimately if putting nice things on in a nice venue and giving people something nice to drink guaranteed good coverage then, I mean, I wouldn't have just done that monologue about board games and the Lib Dems, right? So I don't really ho- think the theory holds at all, but let's, like, give it some house room. Because when people point to examples of it being successful, they're mostly going, so, yeah, they're mostly going, oh, there was a very close personal and political relationship between the two principles anyway, right? So, like... But the two principles here are not the Queen and Donald Trump. This is the interesting thing about it, is they've managed to time this state visit in the last week of Theresa May's... Well, because it's the 75th anniversary of... D-Day, yeah. right, which I know Theresa May didn't quit around the... But you know what I mean? This is obviously planned in a long time in advance. But nonetheless, he he's meeting the lamest duck prime minister that you could... I mean, it, like a duck with no legs would be less lame than Theresa May at this point. So the, the kind of theory of, of state visits, which I am overall dubious about, but, you know, it's, it's plausible-ish, right? Partly because there's no control group, right? You can't you can't get a country to go, right, so we're going to pursue identical foreign policies. One of us is not going to do this. One of us is going to do it, and we'll see which one of us does better. However, even if you imagine that Theresa May was, you know, in the third year of her, her wildly successful premiership with a majority of, you know, 120, you know, we've left the EU, you know, thanks to the brilliance of Nick Timothy, you know, every, like, Some fanfic white right here. working class person to ever vote for the Labour Party has seen the error of their ways. Every social liberal has, has moved away from marginal seats and just lives in five urban seats in the centre of London. And, you know, and she's hugely successful. It's still a meeting with a president who anyone who's paid even the slightest bit of attention to his presidency or even his conduct today knows that, like, he is not someone who is sufficiently across the detail and sufficiently well, I think I stole something from you that I then regurgitated to some people yesterday, which I think you may once said to me, you know, that stage that you have with children where they don't have object permanence, right, which yeah. is why you can play peekaboo with you and they're genuinely surprised that you're sort of still there. Yeah. That's sort of like Trump with any 
idea. Yeah. That what he said yesterday is not a reliable guide to what he thinks today. And actually, the most damning quotes about Trump are often from his staffers when they're trying to be nice about him. And they'll say, like, well, we knew that tra- this was a very important issue to present to President Trump, so we turned it into a sort of colouring book for him where he got to colour in a map of Iran, and therefore we knew that he understood how the nuclear programme there worked. Iran is obviously the most terrifying current example, right? In the Basically, Trump's bellicosity on the issue is all over the place, and the only variable is who has talked to him most recently. Or, you know, when he came into office, a much less terrifying example, you know, he was shown round by the Obamas, and he went, you know, Obamacare's great, maybe we'll keep it. Because he'd talked to someone, you know, faintly persuasive about Obamacare for five minutes, right? So, in an odd way, a Trump state visit is like the kind of, sort of, it is like Haribo for public policy, right? And then any politician who does it gets this immediate sugar high of him sitting there going, I love NATO, I, I love like... We'll give you a great trade deal. Yeah. And then someone asks one difficult question where they say, and would you expect the NHS, you know, private companies to be allowed into the NHS? And he goes, of course! Yeah, and then no. you go, like, oh, right, okay, no, that's but, not going to happen then, is it? Yeah, so I just think there, there is particularly no point to it with this president and i am yeah personally of the view that i am just deeply deeply unconvinced on the idea that there is a point to it it just it just feels so so inconsistent with indeed all other life right then basically the argument that state visits are an effective tool of diplomacy feels a bit like the argument of like journalists in the 90s and like you know their unlimited company cards were an essential element of getting stories right it's just one of those things where you just it's just like okay well walk me through what the the theoretical steps okay are. but the thing is do you think that either donald trump or indeed the poor old royal family who i've begun to feel quite sorry for are actually enjoying any of it this is the thing, it's like one of those, and this is going to be the most bratty thing I ever say on the podcast. Do you ever have a problem with your partner about buying gifts for Christmas? In the, If there was anything that you actually wanted and needed, really needed, you would have just bought it for each other before that point? When you get to a certain level of success, like it's lovely, because actually if, 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 like if I need an iPad, I have need? an iPad, everyone needs an iPad, <laughs> you know what I mean? I have an iPad, it's quite, so actually you end up buying each other like either like I'm like going for a nice meal out together or something that is just wildly like flowers or something that is just completely, you know, gifty. Because, but, and I sort of feel like the same thing about, you know, press trips are brilliant when you're a young journalist and you think, well, it's amazing. And then you, like, as you get into your fifth successive visit of the day to a geothermal power station, you think, was it really, like, just because I get to go and have some tapas tonight, was this really worth it? And that's how I think state visits must be. I mean, the Queen, bless her, She's used to it. She's, you know, she's rolled with the punches. But actually, was when Donald Trump was getting the tour of Westminster Abbey from Prince Andrew on Monday, can any human really have enjoyed that? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. It's odd because you've also... I'm now going to enter a slightly depressed fugue state because at the start of the the thing about gifts, I was like, this is obnoxious. But then I suddenly thought... Like the, the it's sad obnoxious truth is, but true, is, isn't it? Basically, throughout my life, my reaction to presents as, as an adult yeah. has either been, thank God, a duvet, I really needed one and couldn't yeah. afford one. Or, ah, here is the gift that I specifically pointed at and did a kind of like, lassie, lassie, that one down the well routine. <laughs> and I, I, I weirdly can't think of a point in, and I, yeah, until you'd kind of like lampshaded this, I hadn't really occurred to me, but there really is very... There no, are there's very a hinge. F- like, it's a lovely problem to have, but... Where, it, but yeah, yeah, I basically can't think of... A, I've only ever reacted to a present as an adult with intense relief. Yeah. Or, 
Yes, that is the... Right, and now, because I'm a member of a big family, Christmas turns into this absolute hoopla of 9,000 people exchanging very precise instructions about things that they want, and then someone goes, can't we all just have each, give each other money? And then we go, well, that's absurd, that's just like a sort of weird bartering system that we have. Then we switch to, like, maybe we should only buy presents for the children, because they actually appreciate them. Gift-giving. But, yeah, so will they enjoy the... I mean, I think it comes back to the point, and is there a point to state visits? And I do essentially think it's one of those things that whenever you ask you know i can't believe i'm saying this on a podcast and i'm fairly certain that some of the people i'm about to insult listen to but anyway where we're going we don't need roads it's the kind of thing that when you ask a certain type of plummy foreign office civil servant will kind of go but but of course you 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 don't get anything done without serving people pass it (laughs) but it's just like "Mm, oh man okay right so let's so let's take this sort of er example right the thing that people continually do where they go oh but i see you didn't protest when z jiping turned up it's just like yeah the big difference is is when z turned z turned up i didn't have to listen to people going oh it's weird that they've like not mentioned tibet or falun gong i mean i wonder what that that's about whereas there's this weird obnoxiousness with a trump visit that we're all like kind of required at the same time as not inviting the literal home secretary because he's one of the browns to go oh our enduring reputation relationship based on democracy and freedom okay so this is a thing about sajid javid that i did wonder did they not invite him to the state visit because they were worried that Trump would just get him confused with Sadiq Khan on the basis that he would just see somebody who looked Asian and therefore have an absolute conniption and they thought this is probably just best avoided. Well also right this is the guy who you know the one consistency of his politics both when he was you know a pro-business democrat to like you know a, a birther to like whatever the hell he is now, you know, this kind of like glove puppet for whatever faction of the Republican Party's spoken to him last, is racism, right? That's his one, yeah, like, it's the consistency of him going, oh, I don't like Meghan Markle, oh, Sadiq is terrible, but... Well, this is the thing I thought, is that, you know, that kind of tendency of like, oh, he's just got this incredibly instinctive thing that he just taps into the base. And you're like, but the Meghan Markle thing. So he he was told that she had criticised him and she went, I hear she's nasty. Like, I didn't know that she'd been nasty. She was so nasty. And then since said, I never called her nasty. It's fake news. And the problem is, it reminds me a little bit of some of the Labour Party's anti-Semitism travails, right? At some point, you have to go, either you have done this because you are dumb or you have done it because you don't care. Mm. And neither of those is particularly good look. Yeah, I just think with Trump, right, it's, it's not so much that he's pandering to the base. His attitudes and the Republican base are essentially right. identical. But also right? he's got no ability to stop and say, should I insult one of the senior members of the beloved royal family, you know, mother to a newborn baby who everybody has cooed over not two weeks previously. Like, that little bit of tape just does not run in the head. You yeah. just get the, someone's been rude about you, sir. How do you feel about that? I hate them. <laughs> and, like, he just doesn't... Yeah, he's just pure id. Yeah. So, yeah, no state visit would mean I would have had fewer photos of people in frocks to look at. One downside. But ultimately, apart from that, a massive waste of everyone's time and money. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com ACAST. 
And I'm joined by Ben Power, the adapter of the Layman Trilogy, which is at the Piccadilly Theatre until the 31st of August. So this play has a pretty epic span. It starts in what, mid-1800s, with the three original Lehman brothers coming to America from Bavaria, and it ends with the, the phone call that brings in the news that Lehman Brothers is going to collapse in 2007? 2008. 2008. Yeah, exactly. So the thing that mesmerised me about this is you took, it was a nine-hour Italian text with, what, 15 actors, mm-hmm. and turned it into a mere slim, slender three hours <laughs> exactly. with three actors. That's what I always have to say that. Some people, you know, I can see people's faces when they hear that it's three and a half hours long with two intervals. And actually, I say, you don't know, you don't know you were born. This yeah. could have been so much more arduous. Yeah. So what did you chuck out? The thing that's, I think, important to say about the Italian text is that it's not really a play. It looks on the page more like a poem, like or like a sort of epic poem, like a, something from sort of Homeric. That's the layout of it. It doesn't have characters, doesn't have stage directions. It's not broken up into scenes. It is just in three very long parts, you know, hundreds of pages of poetic text. And it includes everything that's in our English language adaptation and huge amounts else uh the 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 span is the same it begins where it begins his first line is our first line and it ends where it ends but in between i mean Massini's ambition sort of knows no bounds he wants to to tell the entire story of the building of american capitalism and he does so with great length and with great verve whilst you know going into strange very human corners and those are the things that immediately one kind of starts to when when I read it one starts to respond to the family story the human story and it's that that in the end I think is is why people are reacting positively to the play because it takes these huge systems and this as you say epic time span and then manifests it in a way in a you know at the human scale and through a family and in our version through just these three brothers and that's sort of as important as anything in terms of the condensing. The decision to not have the characters portrayed literally by the number of actors that seem to be sort of asked for in a conventional sense, but that the three founder brothers would do everything, that their perspective would be across everything. That forces a sort of strong, obviously, strong interpretive mm. bent on the original and pushed us towards where we are now. Yeah, I really love that as an artistic choice because you do get a sense of... Because it kind of goes back to them narrating it in their sort of semi-original kind of slightly Bavarian-inflected accents. Right. You kind of see the distance from the original intention of what that you know what those three brothers did, you know, as Amer- immigrants coming to America, starting a cotton shop in Alabama, mm-hmm. to this kind of crazy world of high-frequency trading and derivatives and right. n- bits being moved around on a screen that don't really seem to represent anything. But I think the thing that... Because I think it's a play that wears its politics pretty lightly, but the thing I kind of hadn't clocked about Lehman Brothers, and I would have told you that I said I knew a reason about mm. about Lehman Brothers going into it, was that it was a business founded on slave labour, right? Yeah. The only way that the, their version of trading worked was that the cotton was at artificially low prices because right. you weren't paying the people to pick it. Absolutely. And they sent it out of the antebellum south to the north. You know, you like deliberately maximising that... The divide, the social divide that existed in America at that time. Yeah, but it also gives the three your three actors a chance to. I mean, they look like they were enjoying it, right? Which is always a nice thing to see on stage. I like, uh-huh. you know, seeing actors who really get a chance to kind of really let rip. I think that's right, and sort of we don't talk about it enough. Like, there's a sense not just in the performances, I think, but in the whole production and what Sam Mendes and Ez Devlin and so that's um, the director that's and Sam, uh, Sam directed. And Ez, Ez Devlin the... was the set designer, and then 
Nick Powell, the composer who's written this piano score that almost like a silent movie illustrates and illuminates the whole text. There's, there's a delight in performance, which is obviously embodied by the by the character switching that the three actors do, but that the whole thing has. And and that sort of belies the potential heaviness of some of the material, I think. It's always lifted by a sort of a sense of the theatrical or the carnival, you know, the performative. Yeah, watching Simon Russell Beale kind of be a kind of simpering debutante, I think, is right. an underappreciated pleasure. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> but I was interested about how much of the politics of it you kind of get into, because... Mm. I think for people who haven't seen it or read much about it, the obvious reference points are something like Enron by Lucy Preble or Adam McKay's film about the big short, which does a similar thing right, of trying to explain capitalism to you by the meaning of a story. I mean, right. this has, to me, a much more, because the family focus has a much stronger through line of character running through it. But nonetheless, it doesn't go, ooh, bankers are terrible, sure. overtly at any point to it. Was, was that something that was... It was like that in the original text. Was that something that was a deliberate artistic decision on your part to say, actually, I think presenting it reasonably neutrally and letting people draw their own conclusions is a stronger way to do this? It's definitely true of the Italian text as well. And it's something that we talked about a lot because I think we could have inflected it more than we have done. I think the thing about the examples you give and films like Wolf of Wall Street, films like the the various accounts that exist of the collapse of Lehman Brothers itself. There was a BBC film, there was an American TV film... If you're trying to talk about what was happening in American capitalism and American finance between, say, 2000 and 2008, which certainly Enron and Big Short were, it's really hard not to be polemical, not to take moral position on the behaviour of investment banks at that time. The same is not quite true of banking in the 19th century and in the 20th century. There are moments, and I think you see it in the play in the run-up to the 29 crash, where a similar sense of a spiralling out of control is present in the way that the financial structures are beginning to operate. But I think the play sort of asks you to imagine the moment before it was obvious that that kind of rapacious, self-interested approach to finance and the American economic model existed before that. And I think there is a sense, and it was like a huge surprise for me to find it in the Italian, but I'm I'm sort of glad it's there. Quite a romantic sense of what the American capitalist model could be as it's being created in the 19th century by these men. And that's that's not to belie the fact mm. that they're doing it on the back of slavery and the pre-Civil War moments or through other kinds of exploitation at different points in the 19th century. But there is also a sense of the collective good and the collective growth of that country that happens in the late 19th and early 20th century and things like the development of the new deal in the 30s and 40s things like america's involvement in both world wars these are things which were enabled by lehman and the systems that the companies like lehman were building and i think it's what the play asks you to do is imagine if you can to go to a moment before it is inevitable that the system is going to collapse into amorality and sort of a, potentially see something noble. And that's where the perspective of the three brothers, I think, is useful. Because I think when the three brothers describe the trading floor of early 1970s Lehman, and that the kind of um, the prototype for everything that comes after in the 70s, 80s, 90s and in the new century, the horror with which they can, they're able to talk about this thing which is entirely to them abstracted, entirely removed from the material trading of goods and just these numbers flying through the air and coupled to a sort of 
bestial sense of inevitable growth and accumulation they're able to look at that and it feels very different and very distant from what they are trying to build at the beginning. I think that's what I, one of the things I liked about it, taking such a wide historical span is it does make the case very strongly that kind of banking is a young man's game, mm. that actually every generation gets to a point where they get pushed aside and told, sorry, you know, Granddad, thank you very much, right. here's your carriage clock, but we trade in railways now or yeah. we trade in you know high frequencies now, whatever it is. And that's one of those things. And again, like yeah, I think you say having that span also allows you to pick up the kind of the, the ways in which history rhymes. So that big situation before in the twenty nine crash, where they say, well, look, you know, some of the other banks are just going to have right. to go under, and we'll be one of the ones standing. Like we'll weather it. We won't help the others because yeah. some people have got to go down. And you think, well, I'm sure those same calculations were kind of being made about how far the contagion could be allowed to spread. Was there a kind of brush fire necessity of a few? You know things going under before the government would then step in and prop up some of the other ones. Which... And I think a fatal miscalculation in 2008 that Lehman thought that they would be saved, that the mm. Fed would step in, and when that didn't happen, the path to bankruptcy was accelerated really dramatically over that weekend in which the play happens and the run-up to the Monday morning declaration of bankruptcy. You know, the U.S. government, Tim Geithner, you know, the the nascent Obama government, and the end of the Bush administration decides not to save Lehman. And in 29, the opposite was true. I think it's fantastic to be able to, as you say, rhyme those two things in the play. Not least because if you talk about 29, you can look at the the years running up to it, the decades running up to it, but also the decades after it. And one of the things about 2008, it seems to me, is that we're still really, really young in our awareness of what those events meant and what the ongoing international impact politically, socially and economically of what happened at the end of the last decade. Yeah, I think think that's one of those really fascinating things about trying to recapture with history about what it feels to live like living through it forwards, right? And the same way that we think of the 30s now as a decade so, so dominated by the backlash to the crash and and, and all the political movements that happened then as, as happening in that space. And we're not quite there at seeing this decade yet as in some ways an inevitable right. kind of you know reaping of what was sown during the last work. How much of the history did you have to massage to make it fit into the play format? I mean, a bit. There are, as always, there are things which you try and there are characters which are condensed. There are moments which you try and bring together. I think the thing about the form of it is that it's nice and loose so that it, you can you can chime things next to each other. It never goes, we're here on Monday the 13th of June 1924 and this is what's happening in Philip Lehman's office because the whole thing is much more Mm -hmm. open and sort of poeticized heightened than that you can I think you can allow the history to to chime in a way so it doesn't feel quite so like there's any contrivance required and you know the fact is that the story is so huge they did so much you know when you come to discover that Herbert Lehman, the cousin who's forced out in the power struggle of the the 1900s, forced out of the bank, who goes on to become governor of New York, goes on to become a senator, stands with Roosevelt as he's making the New Deal, is integral in the rebuilding of America after the war. You know, the history just keeps giving you the stuff that you want mm. as a playwright thinking about this material it's all there it's the most incredible family story right because it's henry lehman isn't it who's the who's simon played by someone russell beale who, who yeah. dies very early on right which is in, in dramaturgically is a bit of a you kind of wouldn't want that if it were a more straightforward telling of the brother's story but because simon russell beale lapses back into that character and that voice uh-huh. he's the, the, you know that that the idea of three of them stays very strongly throughout the play right uh, right and it means that by the end you have 
you know, the three of them are able to sit Shiva for their bank, are able to mourn their bank. You have the, the you know, the final image of bankruptcy arriving and the three brothers receiving that and, and un- understanding that. So that, yeah, they're, they're out of time. So this is a spoiler for anyone else watching, but I thought <laughs> the final scene in the play was really extraordinary. So as you say, Shiva, the Jewish ritual of mourning, which they've done several times throughout the play for various members of the family, they then do that and say Kaddish, the prayers. And then it, the stage rotates and you get, and honestly, it made me... It, this is my most nostalgic moment when watching the play. The fact that everyone was in that very light grey and then pastel coloured suits. So you see a scene of office workers receiving. And I thought, God, that is the colour palette of the banking crisis, yeah. right? People who didn't want to wear it, they didn't wear loud because that was the kind of, those were the colours of 80s. That's Wolf of Wall Street era, like brash loud. Brace it, red braces. Right. Yeah, so right. now this is the new era in which everyone's very kind of secretarial and downbeat. And, and, and you know, and they talk about banking as a kind of, you know, mo- they talk about it in much more moral terms. They're not kind of just snorting cocaine off the floor it just captured 2008 for me kind of perfectly and I do remember that watching those pictures of Lehman Brothers people carrying their stuff crying out of the offices yeah. in the sure and certain knowledge that actually no one else felt sorry for them right but, you know which when normally when people lose your job people feel sorry for you but everybody kind of thought sorry guys this but it is, had happened this is this had to happen yeah that's right it's sort of testament to the the skill of the design team and the creative team that actually the photograph that's recreated in the program of the of london actually the london office hearing the news of the white shirts and with their backs to the window sort of iconic image i think you can see very directly how that influenced the glass box design the boxes the iconic boxes become so the toolkit for the entire performance like those kind of pick right. the ones Bankers you pick boxes. up filing yeah. full like with you have full cap folders inside of yeah. them and that becomes half that's all the staging that becomes ladders and telling yeah. boxes and stuff like that okay so finally here comes the hard sell bit this is the bit where you have a chance to shill for your adaptation why should people go and see it well i think as we've been discussing there's definitely a sense i think that we need to try and understand where we are right now and in order to do that thinking about 2008 is very very important and in order to understand 2008 we might want to not just think about the events and the derivatives market or the subprime mortgage crash, the the things that happened in the very, very years running just up to that, but actually take a very long view about what underpinned this system, these systems, who the people were who created them, why they created them, and why or why not they were inevitably doomed. And that's what the play does. And it it does it through a family story, a human story, the story of brothers story of fathers and sons, parents and children, and I think we can all find ourselves inside that. And as you've know, as you said, Helen, it gives an opportunity for these three extraordinary actors to give I'm just gonna say that 100 was extraordinary performances. Very highbrow, and at no are. point did you mention you get to see the extraordinarily attractive Ben Miles dancing in a waistcoat. So that yeah, was... I mean, the cl- my favourite section of the play is the bit where they are dancing on top of boxes, the twist sequence, which seems to me to be both a neat metaphor for what was going on in capitalism at that time, but more than that, just a riotously enjoyable thing to watch in the theatre. Well, Ben Pair, thank you very much for joining me. The Lehman Trilogy is at the Piccadilly Theatre until the 31st of August. Thanks. And now for a segment we like to call... You Ask Us. Yeah. So this week's question is, what next for Change UK? Stephen, do you want me to... I could play some mournful kind of like, 
kind of sad um, violin music while you tell me um, what's happened to Change UK. So Change UK have split. They have changed. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, sorry. Change UK have split. Yes. Um, split UK. Uh, unleashing a terrible series of puns about the word change. Six of them They have... should turn and face the change. So this is actually the thing I have found oddly frustrating about change, right? Is the, from a, like from the perspective of my free morning email, right? From a headline perspective, change is obviously a massive gift of a title. The problem is, is, is one, it actually turns out it's not as much as a gift as you think. But you also have the kind of what I think of as the paradox of too many options. It's simply too generic. That's like, the problem, right? You need to, if you kind of get a good like I don't know, really great pun on. Podemos, then actually people really kind of go, oh, yeah, that's a tough one. And you know what? You, I'm going to say something. That said, of... I'm still deeply embittered at the lack of response than come back, BB come back, you can blame it all on Avi, which was like a reference to a really obscure song. You know, baby come back, you can blame it all on me. Um, oh, no, I thought it was Pato Banton's Baby Come Back. No. That was a great song um, from the 90s. You probably weren't alive for that. Netanyahu and uh, a figure in another a bit of the Israeli right. And literally only two people got in touch. About it. Although one of them works in the Israeli embassy, so that was quite. It was just like, ah, see. Yeah, but my I know what you mean. Are spreading throughout the world. I know what you mean about change, because the problem is the pun is easy and therefore unsatisfying. Yeah, no one's impressed by a pun. But that's not going to be a problem for you anymore, Stephen, is it? Well, you know, we, we've always got to give house room to the idea that maybe. Are you going to call them romp change? Romp change. I mean, I just don't think I'm going to call them anything. I like how my my spiel about we've got to give the. I couldn't even get to the end of my spiel because, like, essentially, right. So what's happened is Chaka Ramuna, Heidi Allen, Luciana Berger. Gavin Shuker and Sarah Wollaston have split off to basically go back to being the independent group, have kind of essentially gone, basically said what all of those people have been saying to people in private, which is change has been a series of mistakes from beginning to end, both in tone, execution, how we approach working with the other Remain parties. We need to go back to where we are, support each other as independents and work out what we are going to do next in a more considered way. Which I really like. I think, and I want to take a moment to say that is a good and humble thing to do. And actually, you know what? One of the reasons that it took Nigel Farage decades to get to being the Nigel Farage of today, right? Well, yeah. literally, it was, he's now 20 years since he first became an MEP for, for UKIP, as it was then. Yeah. Like, this stuff takes a long time, and he built up people around him. And the Brexit party is the fruit of alliances lasting, you know, donors he's known for years like all of that stuff is is really quite tough yeah this is all true there is then kind of the you know continuity change or the continuing change or rump change or loose change or no. i mean i think spare change actually is probably going to be the 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 structural problem they have right in the, so the continuity change is led by anna Subri and its remaining members are chris leslie joan ryan and Coffey, and Mike Gapes. So the, the interesting thing, right, about the rump is in an odd way, like the, the unrealised potential rupture point in this parliament are broadly Labour MPs who, who want something, who basically want Labour, but minus the minus uh, EHRC investigation. Yeah. Uh, or even like to actually a much minus, more soft left, right? Yeah. They, want a, they want kind of Miliband era Labour back again. Yeah, right. The problem though right is although it's very easy to play knockdown ginger in any bit of the parliamentary estate and at least one person who opens the door and angrily shouts at you for knocking on their door and running away will be a labor mp in that tendency the thing is 
none of those MPs, if you're like, oh, would you like to join a party led by Anna Soubry, someone who said that she is proud of George Osborne's economic policy, the number that those people, yeah, who I've weirdly knocked on the door of, would then move from shouting at me for yelling at me. I was like, well, why have you asked such a stupid question? Obviously, I don't want to be in a party led by Anna Soubry. If you've played Knockdown Ginger and you're standing at their door answering questions about whether or not they'd like to be in a party led by Anna Soubry, you've really, really not grasped the concept of the game, or you're a very slow runner. It's yeah, they're quite sharp turns in in BCH, right? You've got to you've got to be careful. If you at too great a speed, you just bang into the wall. But anyway, my, the the kind of the, the central point is that yeah, what Anne Coffey, Mike Gapes, and Joan Ryan all have in common, right, is they are not liberals. Yeah, they're hawkish on defence. Yeah. Yeah, they're very, yeah, all those kind of stuff. And they have a close personal proximity to political leaders who have fought the Lib Dems for a long time. So it's much harder for them emotionally to contemplate a breakaway, yeah, a breakaway to join the Lib Dems. And they're all people who could plausibly retire at the next election regardless. Anchored to that, you have Anna Subri and Chris Leslie, the people who've sort of most successfully taken control of the institutions of Change UK, although obviously it's fairly easy to take control of institutions when you set them up. Isn't it just like one guy called Jeff? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think uh, the reason why I was, yeah, I started to do the spiel about, oh, you've always got to give like intellectual house room to the idea that you could be completely wrong. But basically, the the structural, well, obviously the biggest structural problem of, the, of change has been the Lib Dems doing much better than they and indeed many people, including people who will be at, right at the top of the party if either Joe Swinson or Ed Davey win believed the Lib Dems could still do. Right, there was a feeling like, sorry, Lib Dems are still toxified by coalition, so therefore they will not be the receptacle for anti-Brexit Labour protest voters. Although actually, in the interesting thing, I saw election data's map of the biggest swings in every constituency. Almost all of England, the biggest swing at the Euro elections was Conservative to Lib Dem, right? That, the, well, from in, in areas. In per area, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the, the thing is, right, isn't this is where the, like, the ecological fallacy becomes difficult for us to gauge, because... We, we, what is well, the ecological fallacy? The eco- ecological fallacy is basically like what a Labour MP does whenever they go, my area votes Labour, my area votes to leave, therefore all Isn't of my votes to leave. It's not a fallacy. But it's called the ecological fallacy. I, I, I don't make the names. Okay. I just Due chuck to them the in the rhododendrons in my, confuse yeah. people while they're listening and doing their washing up. Or okay, whatever. yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah. But So that's obviously the kind of the doomed from the get-go problem, is once the Lib Dems do what they do on in that first week of the locals, you're kind of stuffed as a new party. And because the position, the one that, you know, Subri and, and Leslie wanted, was to be overtly hostile to the Lib Dems, it meant that they couldn't go, oh, look, you know, you know, pro-European, the pro-European centre is on the march. It was just a, like, oh, we're stuffed. The other sort of big structural problem, however, is essentially a kind of, oh, how hard can it be attitude to party building, right? They are still saying that they are planning to put on a conference, right? Now, every every person I have ever you know you know talked to or worked you know with as it were who has run a major party including people who have done it for some time and done it very well when you talk to them about party conference or when you talk to them at party conference they have aged about a thousand years <laughs> they're really difficult you know, they, didn't the sdp have all kinds of problems with its early conferences so their like, first one they, they kind of they like a moving a conference yeah yeah because they needed because they, they wanted some because i think like, they wanted you know, a gimmick well right? there, are, there are yeah there are loads and loads of differences between the sdp and change not least success. But uh, one of them is that the SDP had sat down and thought about ways 
that you could genuinely change politics. I mean, one of the people who's, who's left change said, you know, the, the big problem is, it, is that whenever you say let's do politics differently, half of the people who will nod and agree with you actually mean it. And the other half, what they actually mean is, I had no problem with the old culture of fixing and, and, you know, and, and favoured sons in the Labour Party. I just liked it when I was a favoured son. Yes, it's just my son is not favoured. Yeah. Right, so conferences are really difficult. You know, you invite a bunch of journalists who, you know, miss their families, who to then essentially go sit there and go, well, this didn't work very well. This is badly organised, etc., etc. I think it's half journalists who miss their families and half journalists who are really excited to be away from their families and therefore drinking heavily. Either way, you shake out with some people who are... Yeah, the, the possibility... Not in prime reporting yeah, mode. Yeah, the, the downside risk for your conference to become a comedy of errors. However, I think it's unlikely that they're going to get that far for the basic reason that and I think this, this speaks to right the, the structural problem, particularly of the people who they have left, other than the kind of older uh, MPs who are, I think are a slightly different case. But the, the structural problem of this party, which is a party whose strategic direction has been set by its now effective leadership of Subri and Leslie, has been people who have never appreciated the way they got coverage before was being at the end of one party's poll. And the way that they managed to get donations before was by being at one end of a party's poll. And the way that people who, who gave them money to change initially were excited was this idea that it could do something new. Now, okay, we we can all think of a number of quite bad pro-Remain campaigns which are somehow still managed to grift cash out of hashtag FBPE. Mm -hmm. However, there is a limit, right? There must be a limit. And I simply don't believe them. So your prognosis is bad for rump change. I'm going to make that happen. because I just don't think that they are going to get any... They they have no money. No one's going to pay any attention to them. This will be the last time we discuss them on this podcast. Well, I mean, it literally... Unless I get sent to their conference, in which case I will... No, but I won't be here to discuss it. They'll have to put a mop on a stick and you'll have to tell them about how you actually really inspirational. You found Anna Subri's speech and now you've changed your mind. Well, looking for that mop on a stick. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by Emily Boothel and produced by Nick Hilton. Our theme music is from the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Why not pick up a copy of the print magazine this week? Stephen is in it talking about the Tory leadership race. I am in it talking about how Trumpism came to the UK. It is available at all good news agents, some quite bad news agents, and obviously to subscribe on our website. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.